Well, a very good morning, one hope, you beautiful bunch of people. My name is Steph, and I'm married to the amazing, the wonderful, the ever-patient Kaz. And uh, we're the proud parents of three beautiful girls, Tandy, Poppy, and Frankie. And uh, it's my profound privilege to come and to share God's Word with you today. Uh, but more than that, we're going to be joining you at your family camp. And uh, we've got one session lined up, and for that, it's the package deal of Steph and Kaz together and so we're excited for that we're looking forward to it not least of all because we dig you guys we dig one hope and so for those of you that do know us you know that we've got a personal connection that goes way back with this community with this local church called one hope but more than that we love the local church i love the local church and so by virtue of that i love you guys and so I don't know about you, but I don't hear enough people coming and declaring their love for the local church. I don't hear enough people saying, I love the local church. And so for me, when I come and I begin to unpack and see what the local church is, I can't help but come and be uh, intoxicated with who she is and what God's intended through her and the prophetic nature of this community of people. And so the local church is, of course, the chosen lady of God. She's the bride of Christ, his body in this broken world, a pillar and buttress of truth in a deceitful world, the mouthpiece of God declaring the good news and the gospel to all that will hear, and the army of God that comes and advances against the gates of hell. And so, and so I don't know about the, I don't know if you know this, but, but the, the church and Christ are inseparable. They're knitted together in a deeper way than we might imagine. And I think we've got something of a low view when it comes to the church. Many of us have got a low view of what the church is. And so, and so on the Damascus road, Saul, who later becomes Paul, is on a murderous journey to go and persecute the church, to go into prison and to uh, take captive many who follow Jesus. And on the way there, he gets knocked off his donkey, falls to the ground, has an encounter with Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus doesn't come to him and say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute a random group of people who are loosely affiliated to me? No, he doesn't say that. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so Jesus identifies so deeply with the church that he comes and he says, you're persecuting me. And so I don't think this is just a philosophical phrase, turn of phrase that Jesus is using. That when we come and understand the nature of the church, that she's the bride betrothed to Christ. And that there is a two becoming one, a knitting, a mingling of these two together. That when the church is persecuted, Christ is literally feeling that himself in some shape or form that transcends my feeble, finite understanding. That Christ himself is being persecuted. And so you cannot come and separate Christ and the church out. And so, and so for me, I find it incredibly difficult to to uh, comprehend and compute these people that come and say they love Jesus but hate the local church it just doesn't make sense you can't do that and there are too many people out there that come uh, believers who should know better who love Christ who come and pour scorn despite her failings and imperfections that I'm the first to put my hand up and say yes they are there despite that they've come and they pour scorn upon the church and say they hate the local church. And I don't think you can love Jesus and hate the local church. I, don't, I just don't think you can do that. And so for many of us, me included, I think we've suffered for an impoverished and low view of the church where, 
where many of us have come and reduced the local church, God's church, His chosen lady, to something of a halfway house to heaven, where we're coming and forming a, a temporary base, where we're holding out, we're coming and basking in the gift of our salvation, and we're just keeping our heads low, waiting for Christ to return. And I don't think that if you love the local church, that if you love Jesus Christ, that you can hate the local church. And I don't think that if you love Jesus Christ, you can come and be a backfooted believer, holding your head low and just holding out for Christ to return. I don't think you can do that. And so what I want to do today is I want to come and, and take a moment to share some of my love for the local church with you and pick up on one thing. And so this has been a journey for me for many years where I've come and I've unpacked and, and looked at and, and, and seen something of the nature of God's church, what He's intended for, the prophetic pictures, the, the intangible, tangible attributes of this church, how she works and functions together. And I want to come and pick up one of these aspects, namely the authority of God's church. And I just want to unpack this today with you. This is not an exegesis. This is not theologically rigorous. In, in fact, these are some of the, the ruminations, the musings that I've been working through over some time. And, and so I want to take you on a, a bit of a journey and share something with you. And I'd love for you at the end of today, as you come to grasp the authority that is given to God's church, that, that you'd fall a little deeper in love with her, that you'd give her this church, this chosen lady of God, a little bit more respect and that you'd buy in and lean in just a little bit more. And so that's what we're going to do today. But before we do that, I need to set this morning up with an illustration. And so quick disclaimer, this is an illustration from Greek mythology. So don't run away. Don't get scared. It's just an illustration. It's just mythology. That's all it is. And I want to use it as a platform to come and to declare something of the truth not mythology, the truth, the essence, the nature of the gospel and who God's church is. And so let's go watch this little clip now. It was the perfect wedding, the guests thought. The groom was Orpheus, the greatest of all poets and musicians. The bride, Eurydice, a wood nymph. Anyone could tell the couple was truly and deeply in love. Suddenly, Eurydice stumbled, then fell to the ground. By the time Orpheus reached her side, she was dead, and the snake that had bitten her was slithering away through the grass. Following Eurydice's funeral, Orpheus was overcome with a grief the human world could not contain, and so he decided he would journey to the land of the dead, a place from which no living creature had ever returned to rescue his beloved. When Orpheus reached the gates of the underworld, he began to strum his lyre. The music was so beautiful that Cerberus, the three-headed dog who guards the dead, lay down as Orpheus passed. Charon, the fairy captain who charged dead souls to cross the river Styx, was so moved by the music that he brought Orpheus across free of charge. When Orpheus entered the palace of Hades and Persephone, the king and queen of the dead, he began to sing. He sang of his love for Eurydice and said she had been taken away too soon. The day would come when she, like all living creatures, dwelled in the land of the dead for all eternity. So couldn't Hades grant her just a few more years on earth? In the moment after Orpheus finished, all hell stood still. Sisyphus no longer rolled his rock up the hill. Tantalus did not reach for the water he would never be allowed to drink. Even the Furies, the demonic goddesses of vengeance, wept 
Hades and Persephone granted Orpheus's plea, but on one condition. As he climbed back out of the underworld, he must not turn around to see if Eurydice was following behind him. If he did, she would return to the land of the dead forever. Orpheus began to climb. With each step, he worried more and more about whether Eurydice was behind him. He heard nothing. Where were her footsteps? Finally, just before he stepped out of the underworld and into the bright light of day, he gave in to temptation. Orpheus tried to return to the underworld, but was refused entry. Separated from Eurydice, Orpheus swore never to love another woman again. Instead, he sat in a grove of trees and sang songs of lovers. What an epic tragedy. He goes and does what no one else has done before, only to return empty-handed. And so I want to use this as something of an illustration to make a few points around Christ and the church. And, and before I do that, I think I just need to double-click on my disclaimer and say, uh, Orpheus, Eurydice, this is Greek mythology, and that's all it is. It's myth. I don't want us to come and treat Christ and the church in the same way as myth or as fables or as parables, but to understand that Christ and the church, he is a historical figure and the church is a historical institution. And I want us to understand the difference between the two. But as we come and we look at Orpheus, we see that actually he's something of a victorious failure. He's victorious because he does what no one else has done before. He goes to Hades and, and returns back to the surface of the earth once again. He, no one else had done that and he's victorious in that. But he's a failure because he, the one thing he went down there to do was to bring Eurydice back with him. And he was unable to do that. He returned empty-handed. And the point I want to come and make is that I feel and I'm pained and it it troubles me that there are many believers in the church and, and even in myself at times where I have come, where we come and we reduce Jesus to a victorious failure. That when we come and we consider what Christ did on the cross, it's this incredible victory that he, he dies, he goes down into Hades, uh, only to come back to life again, never to die again. But in that he comes and, and this death and resurrection of Christ is the currency of our salvation, that, that he is the, the substitutional sacrifice that atones for our sins and comes and restores us in right relationship with God. And as we begin to unpack this, we just see how big this is, what, what a miracle it really truly is. And so if Orpheus's victory is this big, in comparison, Christ's victory is this big. It's huge. It's gargantuan. It's colossal. It's immense. And it's hard to come and overstate or overplay just how big Christ's victory is. And, and, and therein lies something of the challenge is that we get so enamored and so in awe, as we should be, around the victory of Christ on the cross that we miss a small detail that unlike Orpheus, who returned empty-handed, Christ didn't return empty-handed. He not only defeated sin and death, but he had something in his hand. And the problem is, is if we come and we simply bask on the victory of Christ and not take notice of what he had in his hand, what he returned with, we run the risk of reducing Christ to a victorious failure. And as soon as we reduce Christ to a victorious failure, we turn Christ and the gospel into a ticket into heaven and we come and we cause the church to become a halfway house to heaven uh, that's the home of a whole bunch of backfooted believers who are basking in the glory of their salvation and simply biding their time waiting for Christ's 
to return, kind of keeping their heads low, just waiting for Christ to come back. And that's just not what I see in Scripture. That's just not what Christ called us to. And if we do that, we're simply treating Christ as this victorious failure, which he is most definitely not. And so the question you might be asking is, what did he return with in his hands? If he didn't come back empty handed, what did he have? And so we see the answer in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, where it says, Then when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, and so this is John encountering Jesus. And Jesus now says to him, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. (laughs) And so right there he comes and he tells us he died, but he's now alive forevermore. But more than that, more than conquering sin and death, he comes with the keys of death and Hades. And so he returned from Hades with these keys and these keys are significant and i want to take some time and unpack what these keys represent and what they mean for us and so to do that i've got to jump all over the place i hope you can follow with me i'm going to do my best Uh, but to kind of start off and get going we need to go to genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and right there in the beginning we see it says god says he says there let us make man in our image after our likeness and so right in the beginning god comes and makes adam and eve and he makes mankind to be created and made in his likeness as his image bearers but it doesn't stop there it goes on and it carries on and it says after our likeness and then it says and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth And so God comes and he gives dominion. And so dominion talks about uh, an area over which you come and rule and reign and exercise authority. And so so for God to be God, it means that he has dominion. And his dominion is all of existence and even that which doesn't exist. And, And over that dominion, he comes and rules and reigns and he exercises his authority. And so if that's what it means to be God, for us to be image bearers and to be made in the likeness of God, to accurately represent and reflect God, we too need to have dominion over which we rule and reign and exercise authority. And so God comes and he says, oh, here's earth. I want you, mankind, to come and take dominion here and to come and rule and reign. But we need to understand this ruling and reigning, this authority, not in the context of the world as it is now, broken and corrupt and perverted, but in the context of how God would have wanted it to be. And so Adam and Eve would have been in unrivaled, unbroken relationship with God, hanging out with God. And and through what they would have seen, uh, how God rules and reigns and how he exercises his authority, God's expectation would be for that they would be that they would then come and reflect that same heart and character and nature and finesse in ruling and reigning. And so and so when Jesus encourages us to pray, uh, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the very essence here is 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 Adam and Eve were meant to come. And rule and reign as they saw it being done in heaven. <clears throat> and so Adam and Eve are given dominion here. They, they have this delegated authority that they are these ambassadors of, ambassadors of God to come and exercise this authority in the name of God. But we need to understand that this isn't in a vacuum, it's not in a void, that there is such a thing as law and order. That God is not a, a God of disorder, but of order. And he uses laws to come and to uh, maintain that order. And so there are all kinds of laws, the laws of physics, what goes up must come down, the laws of biology, each kind 
reproducing after themselves. But there's also a moral law. That there are moral laws that God comes and puts in place. And so, and so we see this with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2 verse 16. And it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so, and so there are ramifications for breaking God's law. If you break the laws of physics, you know, what goes up must come down. The laws, if you break these things, there's reper, repercussions, ramifications, you know, mutations within biology, within the moral law and code of God, the ramifications were death. You will surely die if you break these laws. And so, and so what we have here is, is, is God kind of is coming and he's setting up uh, the, 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 this realm, this dominion, setting it in place to be this representation of heaven here on earth. Uh, and so with that, we see that, that there is this moment, the standoff in Genesis chapter 3, where God comes and says, don't eat the fruits. And the serpent comes and says, eat the fruits. And in that moment, Adam and Eve have to come and make a choice. Who are they going to listen to? And so this is, of course, the inception of sin, the fall of mankind. And, and the Apostle Paul is, is incredibly helpful in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, where he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Do you see that? The one whom you listen to, the one whom you obey, you become the slave of that, of that person, of that one. And he goes on, he says, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And so in that moment, Adam and Eve could come and obey God and be slaves to God, except God doesn't treat us as, he doesn't treat us as slaves. He treats us as sons and daughters with rights and freedoms and responsibilities, delegating authority to us. Or we can come and listen to the serpent and become slaves to him. And so what we need to know and understand is that in that moment, that Adam and Eve came and ate of the fruit. They didn't only come and break the moral law of God. They came and they obeyed the voice of the serpent, of Satan. And in that moment, they became slaves to Satan. And he became the owner, so to speak, of mankind. And the, the slave owner of these slaves, Adam and Eve. And, and what we need to understand with that is, that is that as the slave owner, you own that slave and everything of theirs. And so you don't just own them. You own uh, all their children that are to come. And any possessions that they have, effectively, those are your possessions. And so, and so within the realm of what Satan inherited in that moment... When Adam and Eve obeyed him, within the realm of what he received there was the dominion of earth. The gift that God had given to Adam and Eve now became the legal ownership or the, the legal right of Satan himself. But more than that, he also became the legal right standing over their sentence of death to come and work it out over them. And so Satan comes and with a great power play, he comes and does this terrible thing. And you might come and say, well, why didn't God just come in that moment, wipe all of existence out and start from the beginning again? And so Paul Bilheimer is helpful in this. He says, without a doubt, the omnipotence of God had the power to void Satan's conquest of Adam and his heritage. But this would have violated his own moral principles of government. If God had gone over man's head, and forcibly repossess the title of earth from Satan, that would have been without due process of law. That would have been 
without due process of God's law, of God's law that God had put in place. And so God could have done that, but he, he could have done that, but he would have to have circumvented his due process and his jurisprudence and his process and moral code to come and do that. And in that moment, Satan would have died, but Satan would have won because God would have been proven as unjust and unrighteous. And so, and so God being God chose to honor his code of ethics and, and, he so, and he chose to seek a legal route to come and to solve this situation. And so, and so this, meant, this meant that only one from Adam's race, from Adam's heritage could come and help solve the situation. No angel, no creature could enter into the, the universal courts of God's law on behalf of Adam. It had to be someone of Adam's heritage. And so the government of earth was given to man. It was lost by man. It had to be regained by man. But the question is, is where on earth, where in all of existence could God come and find a human, a member of the human race on which the devil had no legal claim? That is the question, right? And so God solved the problem through the incarnation. Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so what we need to understand here, and, and I know we're going all over the place, and I know I'm saying some statements that maybe you wanted me to come and to back up and theologically work through. I don't have the time for that right now. And so bear with me and get the heart of what I'm saying here. And so, and so Jesus had to be born of Mary. He had to be born of Mary to satisfy the legal requirement uh, that, that he had to be of Adam's race, right? But he also had to be born of the Virgin Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit, to come and satisfy the, the, the legal requirement that he be sinless in order that Satan did not have a legal right or claim over him. And so, and so it was of the utmost importance for Christ and throughout his life to come and to, to resist coming under the voice of Satan and thereby breaking his union and his community with God. And, and as soon as he did that, as soon as he broke the union with God, as soon as he stepped outside of God's word, he, he, would, he, would, <clears throat> um, he would come and fall under the ownership of Satan. But as long as he didn't do that, he would satisfy the legal, legal requirements of God that needed to bring him to the point of the cross. Uh, and, so, and so this was Satan's grand strategy. It was his great gamble. Was Through the course of Jesus' life, he wanted to come and break the fellowship that Jesus had with God. Break the union and the unity that Jesus had with his heavenly father. And so Paul Bullheimer says this. He says, if Satan could by any means at his command prevail upon Jesus to have just one thought out of harmony with his heavenly father, he would be victor and he would remain the undisputed ruler of the world and the human race. And so from Bethlehem to Calvary, the conflict raged between Jesus and Satan. It escalated and intensified in the wilderness, growing in the Mount of Olives, where we read Jesus saying, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And, and it says there that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And ultimately, it was climaxing in the Garden of Gethsemane where he was sitting saying and praying, My soul is very sorrowful even unto death. 
And so the mind staggers to comprehend, this finite little mind staggers to comprehend what it means for him who knew no sin to become sin and to come and comprehend the great gamble that the devil took to come and push Christ towards death, hoping that he would have one thought out of harmony with God, that he would come and fall and falter along the way and refuse to submit to God's word. But as Jesus came and breathed his last breath, his submission to God and obedience to God's word was made perfect. And in that moment, in the first time of all of history, in, in the long history of creation, Satan for the very first time presided over a death that he had no legal right over. And in that moment, he incriminated himself and needed to come under the, uh, under the, the ramifications of him breaking God's law. And so in, in, Christ, in, in Satan's desperate efforts to come and destroy the oneness with God, uh, with Jesus and with God, he comes and he pushes and he pushes and he pushes. But he, came, he became in that moment guilty of a murder, of a death that he had no right to preside over. And, and, so, and so when Jesus came back to life again, when he went down and came back to life again, he didn't just come back to life and win a salvation with God. But he came back with a set of keys and those set of keys was the dominion of earth that he'd wrestled back from Satan through the cross. He comes back with this authority that he, he comes and, and it's this very moment where he comes and wins this victory over sin and death and takes back the dominion of earth from Satan that he's thinking about when he says to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I want you to remember that statement. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of earth and whatever you bound on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so these keys are a picture of authority. It's a prophetic picture of the authority that, that God is coming and saying, the authority, the dominion of earth has been won back by Christ. And so the question we might be asking is, well, where is Christ now? Why isn't he here ruling and reigning here on earth? Well, we know where he is, don't we? I love the picture of, of, of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, he looks in the vision he sees seated next to the ancients of days on the right hand side is the son of man. I love the picture of Stephen when he's being stoned and he's about to die. He looks up and he sees Jesus Christ at the right hand of God Almighty. And so the right hand of God is the point of authority where we need to come and recognize that all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to Christ, that he's seated in heavenly places at the right hand of God most high. And so the question is, is where are we seated? And so this enters into something of a mysterious space, which I can't come and work through and describe completely and accurately, but I can come and talk about the unity that we have with Christ, that 2 Corinthians 15 says that we are a new creation in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. That 1 Corinthians 6, 17 says that, that in the newness that has come, we're one spirit with Christ. There's a, a unity there, one spirit with Christ, which, which I don't understand completely, but it speaks of us being united with Christ. That when it comes in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12 and in other places talks about the church being the body of Christ. And when Christ in the, in the book of Acts to, to Saul comes and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? We see that Christ identifies so deeply 
and in a mysterious way with the church that, that anything that happens to the church is almost like it's happening to him. And so there's this unity that I can't come and wrap my head around, but that the Bible speaks about that we as believers, not everyone out there, not churchgoers and people who are on the census to Christian, but believers, born again believers, we have a unity with Christ. And so if Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the question is, where are we seated? And of course, through your series through Ephesians, you would know Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 says, By grace you have been saved and raised up with him, with who? With Christ and seated us with him, with who? With Christ in heavenly places in Christ, right? And, and so we are seated in heavenly places. And so, and so I'm here right now in Somerset West working through this message. I'm not in heaven in heavenly places. What's it talking about? It's talking about the unity of my spirit. It's talking about the keys of authority that Christ has that he's given to us. And so I want to come and say that when Christ come, came back and wrestled those keys, the dominion from Satan, there's a picture that we need to come and needs to explode in our minds and that we begin to understand that history and the history of this world is not about Rome and Greece and the Persians. It's not about America and China and the successions of kings and queens and monarchs and presidents. It's, that's not the history of the world and that's not the center point of history. If we come and we pull back the curtain as God would see existence and the course of time, the center point of history is Christ Jesus. All of history, past, present and future comes and finds its place in Christ Jesus. As he comes back and wrestles the authority, the dominion of earth from Satan. As he comes and wins a victory for humanity and for our salvation. The center point of history is there. And in that moment, the question we might come and ask, correlating to the curtains pulling back, is if all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ, who does he choose to come and give that authority to? And so under the veil of how the world sees it, we'd say, well, the highest authority in the world is the United Nations or the American government or the Chinese or, or the Greeks or the Persians or the Romans or, or that MPO. Or, or It's none of these. Who does Christ come and give the authority to? This authority, this hard-fought, blood-stained authority that he has come and fought for. Who does he give it to? Not to the United Nations, not to Joe Biden, not to the Chinese, not to an NGO, an MPO, a parachurch or any kind of business. He comes and gives it to who? To the church, to us, to us as believers. And it's this very point that we get to that if all we come and see the cross of Christ as, as a victory over sin and death, we reduce the cross and Christ to a ticket to heaven and we come and we call the church to be a halfway house that we come and bide our time, keep our heads low and wait for Christ to return. But if we come and we allow the penny to drop and we begin to see that Christ won back the authority of earth and in that moment he comes and he gives that authority just like God came. And endorsed and gave the authority and dominion to Adam and Eve as his image bearers. As Christ's image bearers here on earth, the church is called to come and to exercise authority in the world today. And so the church, amongst many other things, is the custodian and the trustee of the gospel in the world today. And the degree to which we've been faithful, the degree to which the church has been faithful to the gospel and been serious around this this. This holy trust that God has given the church is the degree to which the church has come and been a force for good. The degree to which the church has come back 
come and forced back the forces of evil and brought forward the force of good of God in the world, has pushed back darkness and brought in light. The degree to which the church has been faithful to Christ and to the gospel is the degree to which the world has prospered and has done well. This is the truth. All of history is not about the kingdoms and the powers of this world, but about Christ. And all authority is not given to these kingdoms and the powers of this world, but to the church as a delegated authority from Christ Jesus. And we are called as the church to come and to exercise that authority, not to be backfooted, passive, defeatist believers who are like, oh, oh, no. Remember that phrase I said, we're called to come and to take the fight to Satan. The, the gates of hell shall not prevail against God's church. We're meant to come and advance God's kingdom, to take this authority <clears throat> And through intimacy with God, being with God, hanging out with God, hearing His voice, coming and taking our cues from God, and ultimately allowing God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the moment we begin to do this is the moment we begin to see <laughs> education beginning to be redeemed. We begin to see sports and business being redeemed, politics being redeemed, the arts being redeemed. I want to come and call you as this penny begins to drop to see that you have a place to exercise your blood-bought authority in Christ Jesus as the church to come and to make this world a better place. And in so doing, point the spotlight of your life onto Christ and to show and reveal Him for who He is. And so in all of this, as I come and I bring this into land, and I try and find where on earth I am. I hope this has made sense. I hope that you've been tracking with me. But as I bring this into land, what is my point? My point is that, that, that I love Jesus. He's amazing. And, and, and I hope that you love Jesus. And, and if you love Jesus, then like me, you're going to love his church. And you're not going to come and pour scorn upon his church. As imperfect as she is, uh, at her worst, she's still better than than then all that the world can come and throw out. And at her worst, she's still Christ-delegated authority. But I'd rather, rather than being outside flinging mud and calling the church out, I'd rather be on the inside working out and redeeming the church and making her a force for good. And so what's my point? I love Jesus. And because I love Jesus, I love the local church. And if you love, <clears throat> and if you love the local church, then you, if you love Jesus and if you love the local church, mark me, then you can't afford to come and to reduce the church to a halfway house to heaven and Jesus as that ticket to heaven, but to understand that you're called to action and to be a force, an ambassador for good in this world. And so as I close, can I, can I come and, and call for three points of application? Firstly, I want to caution us from, from limiting the cross to a ticket to heaven. It's not. And in so doing, I don't want us to reduce Jesus to a victorious failure. And, and if we do that, we're reducing the church to a halfway house to heaven. Please don't, don't treat the church like that and don't treat Christ like that. Secondly, if Christ wrestled back authority of earth, earth from Satan himself and all authority is given to Christ, then who does Christ give that authority to? Who does he delegate it to? He dedicates it to the church. You and I as believers are the church. He has authorized you to come and to be his ambassador, his representative, to come and work out the will of God in the world today. And thirdly, 
If you are one of these ambassadors, I want to come and call you to be proactive, front-footed, not to be back-footed, defeatist and passive, but to come and be front-footed, to come and to to yield the the fruits of the Spirit, uh, uh, come and and to wield the gifts of the Spirit and to to come and to um, put on the full armor of God and take your place in the army of God in the world today and take the fight to the enemy out there and to come and, and be a forceful good, a forceful God in the world out there, to come and to to as you are the, the, the workmanship, the good work, the, the workmanship of Christ to come and to work out your good deeds in the world in, in love and in adoration for the gift that we have in salvation. And so if I was in the room with you right now, I'd eyeball you, I'd check you out and I'd say, man, the thing I'm wondering is what God thought the world needed, what the God thought this church needed, what God thought this place needed. When he made you, put you together and brought you to this place, what contribution did God think he could draw out of you? And how can you come and magnify it exponentially through the authority that Christ has given to you? God bless you all.